Okay, so I think we are now live. Hello, how are you doing? Hi, yeah, thank you for this. Yeah, doing good at my end. Very good. Um, so this is a conversation about your new policy brief to introduce you to Labourless readers and Labour members um, and talk about work and pensions. But I just wanted to start by acknowledging that, um, that you're on the NEC. Obviously, that's something that I write about a lot as Labourless editor. Uh, and you've been, you've actually been on Labour's ruling body before from 2003 to 2005 as the youth rep. So what was, what was that like as a 23 year old? Did you know that you wanted to be an MP then? Well, hello, Sina, and thank you uh, for this opportunity. Really appreciate the chance to do a Q&A like this with, with our members. Um, being the youth rep on the NEC, I, it's, it's a bit of a haze. Um, it is um, uh, 15 to 17 years ago um, when I did it. But it was it was a strange experience, to be honest, because um, I combined being the NEC youth rep with um, the birth of my first child, which um, wasn't entirely a, a, a seems planned events, either in terms of getting on the NEC or, or Jack's arrival. So it was hard. It was obviously a big job of any role on the NEC. It's travelling around talking to stakeholders, and that's not easy with a new baby uh, in any circumstances. But no, I've got to be honest, I was always um, really interested in local government. I always intended and wanted to become uh, a councillor, which I was. I mean, you know, maybe longer term um, parliament would have been something I would have thought about. I really, to be honest, became an MP in 2010 almost by accident. I mean, people might remember James Pennell, who was our MP in Staley Bridge, and Hyde left at a real short notice. I mean, it was, it was pretty close to the election. It wasn't easy as a CLP to organise that. Um, you know, let's be honest, in all circumstances, I think people know in that situation, you often get a non-local candidate coming to the constituency. Um, and, you know, as a local councillor in the area, there was a strong demand to get at least one local person on the shortlist, but it hadn't been something I'd been intending to do. In fact, you know, at this point, my uh, sort of embryonic uh, legal career was going pretty well. Um, and that was where my uh, interests lay alongside local government. So um, it was really interesting. I mean, the, the NEC at the time had a lot of people on it who I have tremendous respect for, no matter which bit of the party they might be associated with. And people like Anne Black, um, obviously on, on the NEC at that time. Uh, Mark Seddon, who was the editor of Tribune uh, at the time. Um, you know, lots of people. Tony Robinson um, used to sit next to you. I don't know whether this is still the case because all our, our new meetings have been by Zoom, but we used to sit alphabetically back then. I think it's probably the same then. So you couldn't just sit with all your friends or people you agreed with. You, you've got a spread of people sat out. But it was, I mean, you know, it was a difficult time for the party. I mean, this was post uh, Iraq, so, you know, re really difficult internal politics. But I've got to be honest, what I remember of the meetings back then in terms of the just the culture and the conduct and the spirit of the meetings, they, they were better than what I've seen and experienced so far. And I, I don't you know, blame anyone for that. I'm not saying that in an accusatory way. I just think there's so much the party has to do now to recognise that, look, you know, we have a history of working together, whichever faction or side of the party you identify with that has worked in the past, even if it's been a, a constructive relationship or there's been differences of opinion that have had to be aired. And I think we can all hopefully, you know, remember some of that and work together a bit more. That doesn't mean we don't disagree on things, but we've got to remember we are one Labour Party. We agree with each other more than we agree with our opponents. And I, I think that's something we've all got to think of going forward. I was going to ask, actually, like, have NEC meetings changed? Are they, are they different? Are they better? Are they worse? It sounds like they're kind of more argumentative than they used to be. I don't think there's any problem with people expressing strong opinions. I, I generally feel that can be done in a way which is constructive, where, you know, you, you recognise you're on the same side as, as people, even if you're disagreeing or, or you've perhaps have been elected from a different 
base within the party. And I think, you know, I understand why there's a lot of bad faith on all, on all sides of the party, you know, over the last few years. I mean, I, you know, I didn't vote for, in fact, until Keir Starmer, I don't think I'd ever successfully voted for anyone who actually won the leadership election. I'd usually been on the, the losing side of them. But, you know, I, I've worked under every uh, leader who has been the leader whilst I've been in Parliament. I've been asked to be on the front bench under all of those. And I, I certainly, you know, I, I always say, I don't think either myself or someone like John McDonnell would say we're from the same bit of the Labour Party, but I've very much enjoyed being on the front bench over the last few years, you know, and, and the relationships that were built in that time and the work that we did. And I think we've got to remember, I mean, I often say to people, if you think of two, I can't think of two more revered people in the Labour Party in the modern era than Tony Benn and John Smith, you know, clearly from different wings of the party. People might not know when John Smith took his first job on the front bench, it was working for Tony Benn. They remained, you know, close friends throughout their time in Parliament. If you've never seen Tony Benn's tribute to John Smith in Parliament um, after his death, it is, it is a beautiful speech. It's, you know, really heartfelt and absolutely perfectly made, you know, and, and that has existed in the Labour Party. Yes, we've got a history of, of a left and right and, a, you know, a, often at times a difficult relationship, difficult internal culture, but we have worked together for successful Labour governments and successful oppositions. And I think we can all remember that and maybe model our behaviour a bit better as a result of it. Um. Let's let's talk about what happened in 2019. Uh, just well, six months ago or something now. Um, obviously, the manifesto was hugely impressive in terms of the level of detail and ambition, and so much work went into it. And so many campaigners scored victories to get there. And there was a kind of a solution for almost every problem in the country, but that didn't translate into a clear or convincing message to voters, apparently. What did you think of that manifesto? And, and do you think the main problem with, was with the document itself or with the messy communication of those policies? Yeah, I think that is a, that is a fair way to put it. I mean, I think the, the manifesto for all its strengths, it is fair to say it became less than the sum of its parts in terms of, you know, that some of the offers were so detailed, so comprehensive, so large in scope that people felt you know, can this be delivered? And that let it undermine it in a way. Some of the really big pledges, particularly on, uh, you know, things like broadband uh, were felt, I think, to be, um, you know, not things the party could deliver on and people were happy with the way they were presented, even though perhaps the, the case for some of those things in the last few months, unexpectedly, has maybe, you know, been stronger because of the, the homeworking and experiences people have had. And in the main, what I am about, what I think this country needs is a big transformative offer on the economy. I don't think a lot of people get what they need from the British economy in terms of a, a job and a, and a life that they can live a decent standard of living on and support their families. I think that the British economy to me is like an hourglass. We've got a lot of great jobs at the top. And we've got a lot of very insecure, low-paid jobs at the bottom of it and actually not much in between. And I, I want to see you know, a Labour offer that says to people, we recognise that and we can make a big difference to it. I think in some areas, the manifesto, I mean, I, I've said this before, I think in terms of things like empl employee share ownership, that's something I'm very much in favour of, but you've got to have a, a credible mechanism to deliver that. I'm not sure just saying, you know, you have to, as a company in this country, put shares aside without compensation for the benefit of your workforce. I think there are better ways to do that. And as a cooperative MP, you know, I think those are well documented and we can, we can maybe think about how those are better presented in future, um, but I think going forward, we can still make that big offer on the economy, but do it in a more credible way. And I think for me, Keir Starmer's uh, leadership campaign and what he's about so far really embodies that. And I would say to anyone, if you agree with that case, if you think this country needs a big offer of change, then get behind Keir, because that is what he is about. Clearly the public like what they see of him so far. And I think if people give him the chance, he will absolutely show them that that is possible. 
are there policies that you can now look at and say that you didn't think that they were credible? I mean, for example, there was quite a lot of controversy around a four day or 32 hour working week within a decade, that aim that was set out in the manifesto. And afterwards people were saying, well, it's a great aim, but actually it kind of seemed as if it was put into a manifesto that is supposed to be for the next five years rather than the next 10 years. So that attracted a lot of criticism. What, what do you think about those kind of radical policies now? Do you think they just... Yeah, there's no doubt, let's face it, a four-day week was, was a difficult one. Now, I, I, mean, I will say to people, reductions in working time have been an aspiration for the labour movement from the beginning, since before there were legal trade unions and before the party existed. And look at the, look at the hours used, people used to work in the mills in my constituency. You know, people thought weekends would destroy the British economy, and clearly they didn't. So it is absolutely the case that we should be making that point for a better work-life balance for everyone. I think the crucial thing on a four-day week is this, you have to find a way to show how that would improve productivity to the point that you could pay for that reduction in working hours. And that would be different sector to sector. I think, you know, when I see a lot of the campaign online, it's people saying four-day week without any loss of pay. Well, actually, the crucial point is not to say no loss of pay, it's to show how you could deliver that. And that is a much more difficult thing. It doesn't mean it shouldn't be the aspiration. I actually wouldn't say, in terms of the things that caused the most problems in the manifesto, that I would put that there. I mean, the most difficult things I found were, I, I don't think many people probably read in detail the, the financial transactions tax proposal that we had, but it was a very significant increase in taxation in a way that hasn't been proven before and how that would actually be delivered. And I think that was a problem for me internally. Um, I, I think nationalisations, I'm strongly in favour of, of public ownership in certain parts of the economy, but you, you've got to be very clear as to how you would compensate that because it's not a group of people called the shareholders who would be missing out it's basically our pension funds and actually that balance and sensitivity has to be something that you're aware of if you're going to go forward with policies uh, like that uh, and i think that, that share ownership offer without you know without any kind of compensatory mechanism things like that were a problem because believe me especially even in the the business sector i was the shadow city minister so that's that's often a difficult environment to be the shadow uh, minister and the treasury team for there was so much potential support for us out there, you know, partly because of Brexit and the, and the mess the Conservatives had made of it, but also because there were a lot of people out there, there were a lot of allies who recognise that lots of parts of this country just don't work for people. And we've got to look at that, we've got to change that. And I think there are allies out there that we can build those relationships with. And I think we, we can do that going forward. We could have done more of it in the past, but, you know, look, there's no template, easy template for Labour to win. We didn't win in 2019, but we didn't win in 2017, 2015 or 2010 either. So, you know, no part of the party can point to a, a recent bit of history and say, let's just do it like that. That will, that will solve all our problems. We've all got to have some humility and say, you know, look, we've done things that haven't won people over in the past. Let's look at why that was at different times. But when we get to the next election, let's have one that can be a winner. I think these kind of questions a lot of them about that 2019 manifesto and, and like the length of the left working week, for instance, kind of goes to the heart of the Labour Party and how we see work. And I feel like my generation in particular, I'm 26, we're, we're kind of obsessed with work and, you know, not having a gap in your CV and working overtime for no extra pay. And we're always on because a lot of the time our work is digital and it involves you know social media and checking our emails and all that sort of stuff and we're all kind of becoming like that and in many cases I think it's having an impact on our health and well-being and that probably is maybe more so the case during lockdown because working from home means for those of us who can work from home there's there's no separation between home life and work life and I think 
we romanticize hard work, but actually I suspect in a lot of cases it's making us more unhealthy and unhappy. What do you think about those kind of central questions about the ethos of the Labour Party and, and how we see work? Yeah, I want good work to be at the heart of what we do in the shadow working pensions team. So I think a lot of the time the person doing this job has focused quite a lot on social security, quite rightly, it's a big part of spending, it's a big part of uh, you know, a lot of things going wrong that we need quite rightly to offer an alternative to. It's also really important that we talk about pensions, but it's also really important that we just talk about work because I think anything that we do, anything that we propose in this space, if you're just trying to correct a labor market, which is not paying people the wages that they need or a housing market that isn't providing in any way the homes that people need for themselves and their families, you're always gonna be trying just put a sticking plaster over some of this. And so that mission of work, I mean, people got to remember things like the health and safety executive, that's in the department of work and pensions. You know, the, the safety and success of your workplace is, is something within this department's responsibility. And so I think this bigger question around, you know, what is good work? What is the right to, to decent employment rights? When do people get those? What is your redress if you're treated badly? by your employer, you know, these are the things that have got to be central as well as quite rightly the, the work we're going to do on replacing universal credit or how we get adequate pensions for people of working age. You know, I want that message to be central to what we do. I have a great um, shadow employment minister in, in Seema Malhotra, a really high powered team to be honest across the shadow working pensions team. So we're going to try and make sure that's central. Yes, we've got policy work to do on specifics like that replacement for universal credit, like that child poverty strategy that we need, but it's got to be tied to a, to a clear conception of what is good employment because the most, I think the, one of the things I am most proud of in my time in parliament was actually do lots of different jobs on the front bench, but I also spent a bit of time on the business select committee. People might remember that's when we did the investigation into Sports Direct. We had Mike Ashley come and give evidence in Parliament. I, I would say to anyone of any political persuasion, look at that select committee report, cross-party report into Sports Direct. Look at the role, the fabulous work that Unite did in that workplace to identify redress. You know, when we had those evidence sessions. Yes, we had people like Mike Ashley there and all the cameras were there and you know a lot of attention. The most moving session was the one we had to do behind closed doors with employees because they were gonna tell their stories of what their jobs were for them. And even with all the protection and the status of parliament, they had to do that in secrecy because they were worried. They were worried about talking about their everyday employment experiences and some of the things they documented, it was well known in the report around, you know, the case of someone giving birth in, in toilets in, in the Shirebrook factory. Um, horrific stories of sexual harassment um, from, from immigrant workers in the UK. I don't believe anyone would find that acceptable or finds that acceptable. But, you know, that is the reality for some people, not for everyone, but that core mission that Labour's, it's got to be about addressing problems like that. And to be frank, one of the most difficult things in the 2019 election is something like, you know, the work the Joseph Rowntree Foundation have just done, saying low-income voters in the main favour the Conservatives over us. I mean, that, that cannot have gone right if that's the outcome of a general election and when that's the reality of the economy for many people. So there is a lot of work to do, but good work will be central to what we're doing in my team. I, I feel a lot of the time like the Labour Party, like all parties, but it's, you know, it's, it's about Labour and it hasn't really gone to, gotten to grips with the fact that the world of work is changing. And there's there's the phenomenon of, you know, bullshit jobs, those ones that, that don't bring anyone happiness, they aren't really necessary, they're just created for the sake of job creation. And at the same time, we often talk about automation and MPs do talk about this, but it's often spoken of as if it's something that's going to happen in 10 or 20 years, but it's already happening. So, you know, do we accept it? Do we resist it? What's the Labour Party's response to it? I mean, all those questions are kind of these real contemporary issues 
that a lot of the time it feels like we're so busy necessarily opposing the Tories and the horrible things that they're doing with work and the security system and the benefit system that we're not, you know, we're not talking about that stuff, that actually those are discussions that we need to be having right now. So what do you think the Labour needs to do to, to catch up with those sort of issues? No, I think that's absolutely right. I mean, I've always tried to be, I always am quite genuinely someone who's interested in bigger issues, bigger arguments. I mean, that's how I started looking at things like like UBI, which I know lots of, of, of uh, listeners will want to talk about. But yeah, there's got to be some space in, in politics to look at those bigger trends and bigger issues. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of politics maybe is too tactical, a bit too day-to-day and ignores some of those questions. I think the thing you said at the beginning, which is, have we struggled to understand and respond to the big changes in how people work and how they're employed? I think the answer to that is yes. Now, for instance, there are some people in the UK who are in what I would call forced self-employment. They're in jobs that would have been uh, directly employed in the past and now they're essentially in a legal structure because of technology or because of corporate innovation, you know, where they're taking a lot of that risk themselves. And that, that, is, that is a real problem. But there are also people, for some people, for whom self-employment has brought around the only chance of getting control and autonomy in their working lives because the alternative jobs they'd be offered wouldn't give them that. They wouldn't give them that work-life balance and they'd be responsible to someone who you know, might not have that understanding and that flexibility which they need to make their lives work. And we have struggled with that. I mean, nowhere more evident than that than, say, the social security system. I mean, there's so much wrong with what we have at the minute around universal credit and that's why that needs to change but you know what what protections are there in our social security system for a person who is self-employed who takes a lot of risk upon themselves well actually you know for somebody who's not eligible for universal credit under our present system if they paid national insurance they'll get 74 pounds a week less if they're under 24 and if they're self-employed recently self-employed they may not even qualify for that and this i, I see a massive shift over the last few years from the risk that would have been borne by by a company you know, by employer or even by the state being passed on to the individual. And and for me, social security means it's not an alternative, nicer phrase than welfare. What social security means is you share the risks within society that you can't manage yourself, that it would be unreasonable to put on to the individual. I think we've, we've kind of lost a way to interpret that for the modern workplace and how people are working. And that's something we've got to look at. If we're going to try and, you know, build these new alliances, these new coalitions that we need, to increase our support we've got to be willing to understand and do that and just on technology look we shouldn't be luddite about this actually one of the biggest problems in the uk is there isn't enough automation there isn't enough adoption of new technology the question is how you then use that going back to your question about the four-day week how do you then harness the gains of that those productivity gains to give people a better work-life balance and actually i think you know even in the last you know about five years labor has been actually if you look at some of the things that were in our treasury uh, proposals that the work we did in the Treasury team, we were making that case. I mean, it wasn't a big part of what we were saying, but that basic understanding that we've got to find a way to use technology to improve people's lives, not resist it. That was what we were about. And I think we could be a lot stronger, a lot clearer on that message because there could be huge benefits for people. And I think Labour wins and is more successful when we're looking to the future and explaining how that future can be positive for working people rather than resisting it or, or somehow feeling we can turn the clock back. Yeah, I think that's that's absolutely right. And obviously, the self-employment issue, that's a big one. I come from a, a family of self-employed people. That's just like what we do in my family, kind of journalism or whatever it is, photography. And yeah, definitely the issue of not getting any support during this coronavirus crisis, despite being hugely affected by it, all of those kind of things. And that sort of brings us on to that recent interview you did with the House magazine 
and the headline said that you were saying well welfare should reflect what you put in and that caused a lot of controversy because understandably Labour members are really worried about return to kind of language that implies that it's the fault of the individual if they're poor rather than a coincidence of their circumstance or a result of social structures and a lot of members are worried about that rhetoric and the narrative that Labour plays into when it talks about social security and it kind of it seems like there are these two rival approaches universalism and then the contributory approach and it seemed as if to some people you were favoring the latter so do you want to talk a bit about what you were actually trying to say in that interview and maybe you felt that some critics were misinterpreting what you were saying yeah absolutely i mean let me be absolutely clear there'll be no uh, return to any or, you know, any sort of rhetoric from me that mirrors that of George Osborne. I mean, I, people will know for many different reasons. You know, my political history, being chair of Christians on the left, I mean, that is the opposite direction from which I would be coming at this in. What we're specifically talking about is the situation where, as people will know, we, we, we've asked for a lot of changes to universal credit in this crisis that would make not only it more generous, more supportive, but more people would get it. We've actually asked for some of the means tests around people's savings to be removed, partly because of that self-employed uh, argument that you, you've just put forward uh, very well there. But for people who aren't eligible for universal credit, either because they already have savings under the government system, or most of all because their partner works, uh, they might find themselves in a situation where all they're eligible for is the national insurance-based level of support. Now, those benefits exist at the minute alongside universal credit. Universal credit gets a lot of the attention, understandably, but it's not the only story. And hundreds of thousands of claims have also come in for things like New Style Job Seekers Allowance. Because the government has increased the core amount of universal credit in this crisis, temporarily, though it should clearly remain permanent, but hasn't abraded legacy contributory benefits, what you have now for the first time is those, those national insurance-based benefits are actually less than the means-tested level of support. Now, if you go back to, to beverage, you will know the insurance level was always supposed to be higher than what was at that time called national assistance. But it is clearly unjust to be in a situation where the government has simply refused to upgrade those legacy benefits. It also includes people on things like ESA. And what the government has said on that is, look, we just can't do it. I mean, that to me, four months into a crisis, is an outrage. You might have seen with another story on this today, we're continuing to push the case. But all I was specifically referring to there is a situation, and this is how my constituents would describe it to me. They'd say, I've never had to use the system before. I've always supported it. I've always paid my national insurance. And here I am finding out for the first time that I'm not eligible for this universal credit thing that people talk about. And all I'm getting is £74.35 a week. Now, what that means, if you're, on, if you're on the medium income in this country and you've got two children, you would be getting something like on average 11% of your pre-crisis uh, income replaced by those national insurance benefits. Compare that to countries, other continental European countries, where you get 80% under their systems. You know, we have to look at this. When we're talking about a genuinely universal, comprehensive, effective system of social security. It means a replacement for universal credit, but it also means looking at areas like this. So I don't see any tension between a contributory principle and the universal system, because what you need is something that has all of those components to truly give people the support they need. You need a much more supportive you know, minimum for all, which is what a replacement for universal credit should provide. But you also need to look at what's called wage replacements, so or those times when people lose their jobs or are real. How are we going to look after those people? It's actually a different set of policies you need to that than, say, how universal credit works at the minute. Because the fact is, through trade, through technology, more people will experience unemployment or, or perhaps a period of illness in their lives 
than they perhaps have in the past. And at the minute, what we have in this country is, I mean, it's, it's not just political rhetoric, it is genuinely unacceptable what we are trying to look after people with, what we are offering people. And we've got to look at all of that. So look, anyone who has any concerns, let me tell you, our ambition is increasing from what we said in the past. We are going to try and produce a blueprint for a truly effective modern system of social security that gives dignity, respect, and support for everybody. But that does mean a replacement for universal credit alongside changes and a look at how things like the existing contributory benefits work, because we've got to meet all of those different objectives. But crucially, what I'd say is, if you look at the problems we've had in the past, where effectively people have, you know, we've had a situation where, let's be honest, that the welfare state has not had the same levels of political support as, say, the National Health Service has historically. You know, I, I think this is the core of the problem, that for some people, the system is not comprehensive enough. We're not really saying we're going to give them anything from that system if, if they need it. You know, if you're someone who is saving for your children because you worry they won't get uh, on the housing ladder without support from their parents, or you're saving up to help them for university, or you are just a young person yourself or middle-aged person trying to save for your first home, you could find yourself without anything from social security other than that basic level of support, as I say, um, if you need it for the first time. Now, we're not going to build political support for a system if that's all we're willing to offer people. So I hope people will recognise it's an argument for a much more comprehensive, universal system that gives something to everyone as the solution to not just the, the political problem we face, but also a, you know, an, an effective system for everybody. And I think, you know, some people didn't get that point. A lot of people did, actually. You know, I was really grateful for the levels of support and recognition people had from left to right in the party because of that. What would you say to, I think some people were kind of saying in response to that, well, why don't you just strip out the conditionality of universal credit or other schemes like that instead of having lots of different schemes and some of them emphasizing the contributory aspect? Well, the first thing to say is, you know, we're still open-minded on whether you replace universal credit with a combined benefit, combined household benefit, or something different. Clearly, there is no legacy system now to return to. You've got to be conscious of the impact, even if you're improving people's support. It can be a difficult process to transfer people across to something new. So if you have a combined benefit, that's going to be a household-based benefit. So you can't really strip out that conditionality because it's going to take into account both earners in terms of that. We have asked for the savings thresholds to be taken out of universal credit. But the crucial point is contributed benefits already exist. And I'm going to be in the business of cutting any benefits, closing any benefits. People will know if you, you can technically at the minute claim both, say, job seekers allowance and universal credit. But what you'd see is every pound you got from one benefit would be eaten up, you know, pound for pound by universal credit and taken away. So because this system already exists and we've got this injustice from the government as to them not operating legacy benefits alongside universal credit, the problem exists and you can't just pretend it doesn't. And actually, you know, we've got to build on that. And clearly, actually, you know, people do, there is benefit for some people. I mean, for instance, if you could claim, you know, if you, if you did claim job seekers allowance alongside universal credit, if the form gave you that option at the minute, you'd obviously get job seekers allowance much quicker than the five week wait means for universal credit. So, you know, you've got this complex interaction. We've got to be clear with people. I think it's so complicated. I appreciate not everybody gets this, but... The thing about contributed benefits is they're an entitlement, they're a right. It's not means tested. It's not something which, you know, is dependent on your circumstances. And actually, much like you can walk into an NHS hospital and know it's your right to get treatment. There is something, I think, in saying the system is there for everyone. This is what you will get if you need it because of your, your relationship and your, your role to that. That doesn't mean you're not looking after people. It doesn't mean you're offering people less support. I would say that the states, like Scandinavian countries that have, 
you know, much more uh, wage replacement in their system. They also have a, a floor for everyone, which is much more uh, generous and much more supportive. So it's not an either role. It's actually the way you get a more comprehensive system. Let's talk about um, UBI, Universal Basic Income. You've been a supporter of UBI. You're now in this role that it would it would come under. Labour hasn't backed the idea. And it said that basically during the crisis, it would be too complicated. It's not the time right now to start doing a whole new system. Let's just ask the government to, you know, actually those legacy benefits, you need to upgrade them. Sick pay needs to be increased and extended. All of those kind of changes instead of going for a whole new thing with UBI. But what about as we enter the recession and in, in the longer term, what do you think about it? Yeah, it comes up all a lot. It, it's, a really, it's really heartening to see so many people engaging in this debate uh, through UBI. So UBI gives you a really good way of talking about you know, what should the ideals of the system be. And, and I've, as you say, I've always been interested in UBI because um, well, I, I like benefits that aren't means tested. I think um, something which is genuinely comprehensive and universal and open to everyone is, is clearly a plus. And obviously, with uh, UBI, one of the big attractions is, it, you know, there is no kind of taper effect. If you go from being out of work to going into work, you've got, you know, the full benefit of going into work and therefore it's got really good incentives behind it. And um, people who are familiar with my work, my writings on this will know, I've always been open in saying, if you wanted to replace the whole system with just one somehow kind of UBI magic bullet, there are real problems there because how would you support people with disabilities? How would you uh, account for housing costs, which are so variable? In different parts of the country so it's not a situation where you might be might be proposing you just scrap the entire existing system and offer ubi as an alternative that would clearly not be socially just the conversation has turned into one about how could ubi become a component of the system and that, that's really interesting because if you look at how child benefit has worked until the coalition government that was basically a form of ubi for children if you look at how the single tier uh, state pension uh, now works. It's a contributory benefit because it's based on national insurance, but it's based like a form of UBI for everyone who qualifies for it. So these are interesting arguments and they're part of it. What I would say to people is, look, we are committed to having a strategy that eradicates child poverty in this country and to a comprehensive change in our social security system that involves a replacement for universal credit. So the conversation is there to be had in terms of what people want to send to us in terms of ideas as to how to do it. I think it's really important we understand that the future for social security is not one magic bullet, one magic policy that does everything, but actually how you combine those different components. Going back to your previous question, what should be universal? What should be based on, on your contributions? What should be um, a means tested floor, a minimum level of support for everyone? How these components work together is how you get that truly effective system. And I think now the conversation has moved on a little bit to that. It's really good. But we're talking about, you know, there's so much that needs to change. Our social security system at the minute doesn't fulfill any of the basic objectives, I would say, of a social security system in terms of you know, provide, preventing destitution. We don't have that. We have a huge dependency on, on food banks and homelessness. Does it give people adequate wage replacement when they lose their jobs or fall ill? No, we've just talked about that. It doesn't do that either. So there's a lot that needs to change. We're, open, we're not ruling anything out. It was the right call, I think, to talk in the crisis about how the existing channels could be better used to get support to people quickly rather than propose an entirely new system as a way to do that. I think you've got to be pragmatic in a crisis like this and talk about the best way to get support to people. But look, having the conversations, I don't think, as I say, it's about a magic bullet. I think it's about how these different components can be built upon to give a system that really fulfills all of our objectives. Yeah, I mean, it kind of goes back into like the, the self-employment problem and the contributory problem because you know my mum for instance 
She's self-employed. She didn't get any. She runs a, a home restaurant, a summer club. She, you know, she has a weird job. But um, obviously that had to stop during the crisis, right? But she didn't get anything um, because, of, because of how the system is set up at the moment. Um, and I guess UBI would appeal to people like that at the moment as an idea. There's also the idea of the New Economics Foundation we've been talking about a minimum income guarantee. And that would be non-conditional, non-means tested. It would be kind of capped at two and a half grand a month. So a little bit like furlough, but obviously not not that, but in terms of the level of support. What do you think about that idea? Yeah, I mean, that's interesting work. It's um, it's very similar in a way, conceptually, to, to, to the arguments around UBI. There are two ways you, you could do a minimum income guarantee. I mean, again, the crucial question is housing costs because you know, you'd have to basically account for the big variances in housing costs across the country and yet not find something which was essentially giving more support to people who lived in bigger, higher cost properties. That, that wouldn't be an equitable way to do it. So that, that, that is a question in terms of it. I mean, also, um, a big part of a change like that would be what you do with the, the tax allowances and, you know, a lot of complicated changes needed in order to make that work. But look, one of the great things about this department, this portfolio right now, is there all, all these new ideas? I think there, there are different ways to do it. I think you're going to have to have different options. I mean, I think one of the, going back to that question about how are we recognising the different ways in which people are working? We might have to recognise that self-employed people might need a different proposal to people who are employees in the traditional sense. Um, you know, there might also need to be perhaps changes to, you know, there's often been a conversation about do we need additional categories of employment in order to better reflect the reality that people are in and make sure the tax and benefit system reflects that but you know it's a fertile time for ideas and i i very much enjoy you know doing the job in this time because i think i, mean, I call it potentially a beverage moment i think we, we, we have a huge moment right now to recast the entire system in a way which is fair and effective and truly delivers on these goals for the future recognizing the existing system had, had a lot of shortcomings even before what we've seen with universal credit and all the problems you know with that so i think again let's not try and find one magic way to do it all let's look at the different employment categories look at what people need find the right solutions for that but that's the work we're going to be doing over the next few months and i want to get us you know the engagement from members has been magnificent already and the affiliated unions and the unaffiliated ones i've got to be frank uh, as well you know so it's great to have that support from people and we're going to continue that work bring all that together and then come up with some proposals we can then take back to the party and say, this is what we're talking about. What do you think? Let's let's continue the conversation. I'm, I'm afraid that you might give quite a similar answer, but I was going to ask you also about um, universal basic services. I mean, do you find that idea more or less appealing than UBI? Obviously that would be extending access to, to childcare, adult social care, housing, transport, internet services, like a lot of the kind of things that actually Labour was talking about in 2019. Yeah, I mean, this is, again, it's, it's, again, a really interesting conversation. I mean, I think one of the questions, say, for the future of universal credit is, well, what's the future of childcare? Because obviously you get support for, for childcare and universal credit. If that became more of a universal service, that would necessitate changes in there. So they are quite closely related. I mean, I would say, you know, you, you, we as a country, need to recognize the shortcomings of universal credit uh, and so we we need a, you know a, a a social security replacement for universal credit come what may because we cannot be satisfied with what universal credit is doing in terms of food bank need you know homelessness debt arrears just a lack of support that people are experiencing and to be honest that the way that at a time when people you know 
the social security system should, should, should be that. And actually, I, I see universal credit as adding to people's insecurity through things like the sanctions regime and actually making people's lives harder when the system should be a stabilizer to try and make things a little bit easier. So whatever happens on the services side, we need policies that will reflect and replace things like that. And obviously, people will always need some form of income replacement when they lose their jobs or, or fall too ill to work. So it's interesting and it will reflect our future policy work, but I still think we've got to be frank and say, look, we need as a party to have clear proposals we can explain to people on the things that aren't working at the minute and show them how things will be better under us. In your piece for Labourlist, when you talked about your priorities in this brief, which actually inspired this whole series, so thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> so you, you kind of, I think a lot of Labour members and readers who were reading that were really heartened that you said, yep, Labour is absolutely sticking to scrapping universal credit. I think the critics of Labour on that point would say, why are you sticking to that pledge instead of saying actually Labour will reform the system? Because isn't the central idea going to be the same? Well, yes, I did notice a few colleagues had taken up the idea to write for Labour list on their priorities, but it's nice. I mean, I, I will say I'm aware that, you know, I think the NHS is always going to be number one in Labour members' priorities, but there's huge interest in, in my department and the areas that we cover. And I, and I really welcome that because actually I've been tapping into that expertise from people who have professional backgrounds, you know, in this portfolio, whether it's in pensions, whether it's in social security or whether they're just interested and, and, and can tell me what's going on in their, their areas and their communities around it. So like, I really do appreciate that. On the question of reform or replace, my personal view is, in the past, I think we weren't definitive enough on what our plans were for this. We had a sort of pause and a let's look at it kind of policy. Um, universal credit to me means the five-week wage. It means a very punitive sanctions-based regime. It means the, the benefit cap. It means the two-child limit. It means debt arrears going up wherever it has been rolled out. And so I, I want to use the language of replace because... For me, it's not just about how these features work technically. It's about the whole ethos behind it, you know, and I, and I, I don't want to in any way somehow take that brand and, and make it better. I think that brand is burnt for, for many of our members. And it's not it's not it's not just a Labour MP, you know, mourning about a Conservative policy. I know the government want to say this crisis has validated universal credit. What they mean by that is the system hasn't collapsed. Right. That is the minimum level of expectation this country should have for its major social security benefit. You know, the system hasn't collapsed. You want a pat on the back for that. Yes, a, a digital system that, that is sort of something that covers an in-work and out-of-work state of affairs, that, that will work quite well in terms of its technical functions during a, a crisis like this where lots of people are losing their jobs. But isn't the test whether it's giving people the support they need? And when we're being told over three and a half million people in the UK have seen an increased dependency on food banks, can we say universal credit? is doing its job, you know, can we talk to people, whether it's the, the Working Pensions Select Committee, or I mean, there's a report imminently out from, from the House of Lords on universal credit. Look at the cross-party criticism of this, you know, whether it's the five-week wait or sanctions or the two-child limit, this is not working. And we would be failing as a Labour Party if we pulled our punches and said, what can we do? You know, it's there, it's been in place now for a bit. Let's just try and make the best of it. No, let's tell people we want not just a benefit that works differently. We want something that is completely rooted in a different sense of what social security should be. Genuinely sharing the risks, genuinely there for everyone. It's a reality, it's an unfortunate one that there are more people experiencing universal credit than perhaps we could ever have, have thought possible before the crisis. And there'll be some people there who never thought they'd be in this position. But you know, yeah, this has to change. And that's the argument I'm going to make. I'm not going to accept the kind of noise from the Conservative benches that we've just got to accept this and, and move on. And it's a fait accompli. It is not working at the minute. We're going to be making the argument for a full replacement.
The other thing I wanted to ask about just before we go on to child poverty and low-income voters is, um, so Labour's called for, as you've been mentioning, the two-child welfare limit and the benefit cap to, to go, but also for no recourse to public funds, uh, which the Prime Minister has just learned about, what that is, uh, not to apply during coronavirus. And I mean, would Labour consider proposing to scrap that overall because if it's unjust now, then isn't it always unjust that migrants can't access the same level of benefits? And, and if our social security system is designed to prevent destitution, then shouldn't that be included? I'm not going to dodge that one, but I, no cost of public funds is a home office issue because it's an immigration issue. So I, yeah, I've got a, a fairly big brief as it is covering about a quarter of all the government's spending. And so far, I don't, I don't stress into, um, into other colleagues' policy areas, but that I want to live in a country where there is not extreme destitution. I do want to live in a country with the levels of poverty that we have. You know, I, 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 this is a, to do a job like this right now is, is a shot at changing those things. And that's why I'm so animated by it, why I enjoy it so much, even though it is clearly a technical and difficult brief and a controversial one at times. And look, that is the guiding light for the Labour front bench. That is what we're trying to do. The, the Home Office team will come up with proposals in the future around that. It was shocking to see the Prime Minister not even understand uh, what that was. You know, not least because there was legislation directly applicable to that going through Parliament when he had that disastrous appearance before the Liaison Committee. So. I mean, it really challenges your understanding of how does our political system work when the Prime Minister cannot even know a central tenant of his own immigration system, something very much associated with the Conservative Party, which was relevant to parliamentary business in that week. You know, I, I mean, I, I don't think a lot of many Conservative Prime Ministers, but I think this one is is just shocking in his approach to the job. I think it is, it is a lower standard of the job than any comparable Conservative Prime Minister I've seen. And I, I think it you know, unfortunately diminishes all of British politics to have a Prime Minister who is often so woefully unprepared and not even aware, frankly, of what his government's doing. Yeah. Um, last year at conference, uh, at Labour conference, Labour List did an event with the Joseph Browntree Foundation about the importance of winning over low income voters. And we had Claire Ainsley on our panel and she's now head of policy, obviously in the leader's office. and. Um, her work on the new working class and those kind of ideas is going to be really influential, I think, in this uh, part of the Labour Party, this era. And a recent JRF report found that low-income voters were pivotal in Labour's 2019 defeat. Uh, and for the first time, Tories had something like a 19-point lead on low-income voters over Labour. And that's after the Tories have been in power for 10 years, implementing austerity, ensuring that that group is growing and, in, you know, just ensuring that they that so many people are living in poverty. So it's it's a shocking thing to have happened. Why do you think that was happening and what's your plan to change that? It was devastating. I mean, to read if people haven't seen that report, they, they should certainly download it and, and have a look. But anyone it knows what the last 10 years have meant for, for people on low incomes in the UK. I mean, essentially 10 years without any kind of wage growth if you're in work. Um, you know, the biggest squeeze on uh, working age uh, benefits and support that we've really ever seen as a country. I mean, the gap between those are the two big spending heads in the Department of Work and Pensions and what we spend on uh, on retired people, quite rightly, and what we spend on what we call working age benefits. I mean, the gap between those two things is the biggest it's now ever been. So it's been a really hard 10 years, and you're right to say at the end of that, to find the Conservatives winning more support amongst people in that position than us. 
it is something which is sobering and challenging and has got to be at the centre of what we are considering when we're looking at uh, the future. I mean, there are lots of reasons for it. I mean, look, Brexit played a big part in the 2019 election, but there were votes to lose in every direction uh, on that. Um, there were no easy positions uh, on Brexit. And I think we've got to look beyond that when we're talking about this. The Conservative rhetoric on levelling up was popular. I actually think there is not enough comment about the fact that, you know, one nation conservatism used to mean rich and poor. You know, that, that's the sort of basis of Disraelism and, and, and that history of the tradition in the Conservative Party. Now they're talking about levelling up in a geographic sense. They literally mean we're now going to care about the North and the Midlands, which, is, which really tells you a lot about how they think previous Conservative governments have approached that. Um, I think there is a lot on this we need to learn from language and how we talk about it. People don't often altogether want the sense that the government is going to come in and, you know, it, it needs to be helping them in that way. They want something which is more empowering, more, more understanding of, of their working life. So the rhetoric, I think, is important behind it. It does reflect on you know, where the spending priority should be within that uh, social security system. I mean, look, I'm absolutely committed to ending things like the benefit cap and the two-child limit. I think this crisis has shown up the shortcomings of those policies, but it also shows, I think, about how important it is to consider what is the relationship between the support people get in work and out of work, what is a universal level of support. Again, going back to that contributory relationship to what is means tested and what comes from your national insurance contributions. All of that has got to be part of the conversation, but the start of it has got to be listening. I mean, we're going to be kicking off our child poverty strategy, myself and Kate Green and other relevant front bench departments. It's not just a shadow working pensions priority. It's something the whole front bench shares. We're going to work together to do it. We're going to start that off in the second part of this year with listening exercises, talking to people about their own experiences of the system, making sure that people themselves have personal experience of how the system works at present are at the heart of our policy making. That's got to be the place to start with humility, because when you get a report like that, it is very difficult. But I, I certainly would say, look, there are, there are examples around the world of, of other sort of centre-left democratic socialist parties, you know, adopting approaches which I don't think will work for us either, somehow limiting the economic offer and thinking they need to play, you know, very conservatively on that, or perhaps adopting, you know, on um, social issues, you know, moving to the right on those. Now, that's not the way forward. That's not the Labour Party. Actually, I believe we can have a big economic offer of a fundamentally different social security system, but one that commands much greater levels of support. And that's what we're going to be working on and trying to deliver. Thank you so much. Um, I'm going to, I think we've actually covered most of what people sent in as questions um, to ask about because about 90% of them were about UBI. <laughs> so, but I'm gonna pick out some of the ones that we haven't covered as a kind of quick fire thing so that we don't keep you for too long. Um, Sherwin Smith wants to ask you, would you consider negative income tax to replace universal credit? So the, the, well, the history of, of combining benefits, uh, this is hard to do as a quick answer. Sorry, uh, it's essentially been from the 1970s onwards, a, a form of, integration of, of, of the tax people pay and the benefits they receive. And so you, you could see in that sense, um, tax credits as being a form of negative uh, income tax and universal credit as being a continuation of that. Clearly, the system has to be very accurately linked to people's earnings and responsive in a way which doesn't leave them with, with mispayments. I mean, one of, the, one of the real shocking things about universal credit, you know, the National Audit Office tell us one pound in every 10 is not spent in the right way. And really that's because we've seen the tax credit system going into universal credit. And obviously tax credits aren't means tested, but universal credit is. And you, know, you see that the complexities and the problems uh, around that. So 
I'm not sure that the label negative income tax is kind of the retail political phrase we need to sell that. I think we have to find a slightly better language around that. But the principles are, are sound in terms of what has been tried to be done in the past. You know, Harold Wilson's government tried something originally like that um, and where we need to get to in the future. Um, Andy Maidley uh, said, a flaw in the 2019 campaign was communicating our message to voters. How do you plan on selling the message of inequality leading up to 2024 and why are the Tories still ahead in the polls? <laughs> well, I mean, those are good questions from Andy. I mean, the first thing to say is, um, in terms of how we communicate as a political party, we've all got to acknowledge that, you know, it hasn't been done in, well in the past if we've lost elections. I mean, that is the threshold for that. And actually sometimes people, you know, you find as, as a local MP, even people sometimes, I mean, I remember knocking on someone's door on the day of the 2019 election, it was my old council ward and they raised two issues. One was a local issue, which is sort of my central political campaign in that area. And the other one was they were opposed to austerity and they said they weren't sure who to vote for. So we can always improve our communication. That, that's the reality is you've got to keep saying things and getting across and doing it and reflecting some of those answers I gave on low income voters as part of the process to do that. Why are we still behind in the polls? You know, look, we had a really bad result. I mean, the 2019 result is, is probably the worst in Labour's history if you look at where it left us across the country. We know people like the new leadership team of Angela and Kia, um, but the, it's not always about the leader. All of us in the party, all of us in the shadow cabinet, the front bench, the party as a whole, we've got to recognise and people have got to see the change in us that they wanted to see in the, to reflect the reasons they didn't vote for us in 2019. We've made a good start in terms of being heard, but it's just the beginning of that. And frankly, you know, there's a long way to go. The challenge is immense. We won't have easy poll victories. I've never believed the polls are back to where they were in, say, the 80s or 70s, where basically opposition parties just went miles ahead forever. And then when you got to elections, it started to narrow and be more reflective. It's, it's a different world. And the other thing is, we don't live in a Labour Tory world anymore. It's much more around role of the SNP, the Liberal Democrats, the Greens as well. That's the, the system we live in. It's, by the way, why I've always favoured electoral reform, because there are never going to be just two points of view in a country, but that's a, perhaps a different uh, and wider issue. So there will be difficult polls ahead. We've got to focus on what we know we need to do as a Labour Party, but we've got to get behind the new leadership because we know the public like them. We've just got to make sure that the whole of the party is reflecting the good start that they've made. Um. Nick says, would Labour work towards eliminating poverty within a parliamentary term? Yeah, we're going to commit a strategy to the eradication of child poverty. That's what we're going to be talking about. Not reducing its growth, not, um, you know, tinkering around the edges. We all want to live in a country that doesn't have the levels of poverty this country has. Let's just be frank about that. Let's make the case for that, because there's a lot of people who agree with us if we can deliver that. Can it be done in one parliamentary term? I think that is difficult. I think the other thing we've got to acknowledge is we now know that by 2010, we were on track to halving child poverty, that we had halved it by 2010. I think we've also got to say we didn't know it at the time, and people didn't understand the progress that had been made. And if there is one criticism I can make of a policy of our time in government in this area, I think you've got to be clear about what you're trying to do, because actually it has been too easy for the Conservatives to dismantle many of the major things we had in place to, to deliver that progress, whether it was Sure Start, whether it was tax credits. And I think we've got to acknowledge that we, you know, perhaps we're too quiet about how, what we're doing in that area. We've got to go out and make sure we're telling people why we're doing it, that it has huge gains for the health service, for education and just for the dignity of people's lives. So we've got to be more explicit about it. I want that delivered as soon as possible. I can't promise it can be in one term, given the state of where things are growing. Because let's not forget, not only is child poverty growing in the UK, it's heading towards five million. It's getting deeper. So people who were already in poverty are now much more in poverty than they were.
And that is the result of 10 years of Conservative government. There's a huge amount to do to change that. But be in no doubt, my job as Shadow Secretary of State for Working Pensions, and hopefully one day as the Secretary of State for Working Pensions, will be to reduce and eradicate child poverty in this country. So I want Labour members to be totally behind that. Absolutely. I think that's a really important point about the changes that the next Labour government makes to be robust uh, and long lasting as well. Um, John on YouTube asks, are you open to ideas about introducing new national insurance contributory benefits? For example, a carer's national insurance benefit. So to answer John's question, I think carer's allowance um, will be something we'll be looking to make proposals on. I mean, it is, people will know carer's allowance is, is for no clear reason, much lower than other uh, benefits. You know, there's no consistency to be honest across any of the levels now the basic amount of universal credit is different to the now the level of job seekers allowance or ESA and carers allowance is something completely different. This, this needs a, an area to be looked at in some big proposals. I'm not sure they'd be national insurance based because I think actually, you know, being a carer is something which is, a, you know, you should be eligible for that if you are a carer. Regardless, that's an area where you wouldn't want to contribute your principal uh, involved in that. So um, that is something we'll be looking at. Of course, again, that relates to things like universal credit because at the minute if you get carers allowance, if you've got universal credit, again, you just have every single pound of that eaten up and you wouldn't be any better off. So, again, you've always got to look at how it affects the overall system, but I, I recognise on carers allowance changes need to be made. Um, a question from me to, to end it. Um, I'm always thinking about kind of how our economy is so reliant on the unpaid work of women a lot of the time who perform these caring roles. Um, a big part of that is of things like carers allowance, but also just childcare, what could Labour do to, to address that? That's absolutely right. I mean, I, I think on childcare, the direction of travel of the last few years has been uh, you know, broadly good. I'm talking about the last sort of 20 and 30 years in terms of more state support for childcare, but, it, but it's a massive issue. And people know I have, I have four children and at one point, three of them were under five, you know, and if you're in that position, I know, that's, you know I'm taking personal responsibility of that, but it is clearly a very substantial part of your outgoings and it, it, there's no doubt that it, it affects women more than men you know people can argue why that might be but it, that is the reality of it and so it's got to be an area that, that forms part of our proposals I, I think you know we'll be getting to this point again going back to that ambition on child poverty and, and just making a fairer society that we will have good proposals on, on that going forward and I think it does also reflect things like carers allowance and also to be frank for the, the take-up of benefits you know there are times when even if the level of support for people isn't where it needs to be. People are still eligible for it who aren't receiving it. I mean, we see that across all parts of the social security system. So that's something we're going to be very conscious of that is directly linked to the proposals that we make. Again, that's why you need different components to make up the overall system, because things like wage replacement is, is adequate for one part of the problems people face, but it's not the whole solution. It's why child benefits so important. It's why, you know, as I say, the offer you have on childcare and how that's supported either as a service or as part of how you replace universal credit is really, really important. But it's an absolutely fair point and it's central to the work we're trying to do to, to change all of this. Thank you so much. Thank you for everyone who has been watching and thanks um, for doing one of these events. Uh, we've got Cat Smith next week. So we'll be talking about voter ID and things like that. So yeah, keep joining us for these. And um, yeah, thanks, thanks so much for giving up your time tonight to do this. Lovely. Well, thank you, Sienna. And thank you to members for getting in touch and taking part in events like this. There is no uh, limit to the amount of events I want to do with members about my portfolio. I've already been talking to 
quite a lot of CLPs and, and things like labor unions. If people want me to come or someone from my team to come and do that for their CLP, we're more than happy to do that. We really want your engagement and support. and We hope you will appreciate and get behind the plans and policies that we come up with.